I'd like to start with a poem, which I tried to fit into my platform or put in the opening and closing, and it didn't really fit anywhere. So you have to listen to it now. And I hope that it will inform what we talk about a little bit today. It's called, I'd Rather Be the Father, and it's by Faith Sheeran. Right from the start, it's easier to be the father. No morning nausea, no stretch marks. You can wait outside the delivery room and keep your clothes on. (laughs) Notice how closely the word mother resembles smother. Notice how she is either too strict or too lenient, wrong for giving up everything or not enough. Psychology books blame her for whatever is the matter with all of us while the father slips into the next room for a beer. (laughs) I wanted to be the rational one, the one who told a joke at dinner. If I were her father, we would throw a ball across the lawn while the grill fills with smoke. But who wants to be the mother? Who wants to tell her what to wear and deliver her to the beauty shop and explain bras and tampons? Who wants to show her what a woman still is? I am supposed to teach her how to wash the dishes and do the laundry, only I don't want her to grow up and be like me. I'd rather be the father who tells her she is loved. I'd rather take her fishing and teach her to skip stones across the lake of history. I'd rather show her how far she can spit. That was Faith Sheeran in the poem that I couldn't fit anywhere else. Well, let me tell you a story, a true story, that happened not to me but to my husband Peter just under a year ago when our second daughter was born. Peter and I were both home on parental leave. We had a wonderful eight weeks where the two of us were there with the baby and her big sister was mostly in preschool, which was perhaps the best part of that eight weeks. <clears throat> and, uh, and somewhere toward the end of that parental leave time, uh, Peter went to the grocery store and he brought the baby along. Right there, tucked into the baby Bjorn, she was just big enough to fit in there with the little extra straps that keep them close and snuggled. And, you know, he picked up some yogurt and maybe a little bit of milk and came home. He was gone for 15 minutes at the grocery store. But he came back and told me that while he was there, not one, not two, but I think three women came up to him, congratulating him that he was... I guess, food shopping, um, while also simultaneously taking care of a child. One of the women actually said to him, my husband would never have even touched the baby when it was that little. Now, I wonder how many of the mothers here, or women who care for children in some way, have ever been congratulated for going to the grocery store (laughs) with your baby. Peter seems to be frequently congratulated, actually, and he should be. He's a wonderful father. But there we were in this moment of modern fatherhood, a moment where he was able to take parental leave, he was able to to acknowledge his role in the life of this, uh, this new child who'd come into our family. He had her firmly in the baby Bjorn, and still 
he was congratulated for this most simple of tasks for managing a child in the grocery store. The role of fathers in our society is changing, but I wonder how much it's changing. It's still of note, I think, when they take care of children. Fathers are still, in many ways, the other parent. The title for the platform address I'm sharing today came from the Time Magazine article, which caused so much hullabaloo, Are You Mom Enough? You might not recognize the title, but you probably have seen the image. There's a woman with her three-year-old child nursing. And, and of course, it's Time Magazine, and they want to sell magazines and covers help with that. So not only is a three-year-old nursing, which is a little unusual these days, but the three-year-old is standing on a stool to nurse, which I, I think actually happens pretty rarely. And he's wearing, <laughs> he's wearing camo pants as well. I mean, you know, he's a really big three-year-old. So, so they did all they could to kind of have this particularly arresting image and to ask the question, are you mom enough? And that question really ties into a conversation that's been going on at least as long as I have been parenting and which is called various things but frequently called the mommy wars. You know, ought a mother be staying home? Should she be doing attachment parenting? Should she be working? Should she not be working? How much should she be working? How much guilt should she feel about working? How much guilt should she feel about not working? I wonder if we can even imagine what the daddy wars would look like, what the image would be on the cover of Time magazine that would get us all roused up with the same kind of emotion, the same kind of vitriol as we considered what daddies ought to be doing. There is, I think, perhaps some kind of freedom in the absence of the daddy wars a freedom, at least, from the sort of guilt that, um, that society seems to put on mothers. But I also think that there's implicit in that a real negative, both for fathers and mothers, for all parents. Fathers continue to be seen as less important, while mothers are seen as really core to a child's development. This was actually what Felix Adler thought. He was the founder of ethical culture of this religious tradition. But he was writing in the late 19th century. It's been a little while since then. As I've thought about this topic about the place of fathers and mothers in our society and how worked up or not we get about that place, I've thought a little bit as well about the war on women, another war apparently have, that we're having in American society. We know all of those headlines as well, equal pay laws having been voted down, reproductive rights in danger, including access to birth control in states all across the country. And it's easy, I think, to imagine to see a connection there between those wars on women and their access to work and to birth control, to reproductive justice, connected to the role that society wishes women had. The idea that that war on women is connected to a fear that women are slipping out of the role circumscribed for them, of the importance of mothering in their lives. In some ways, though, I think men's roles are even more constrained. That war on women exists perhaps because women are perceived as trying to or successfully breaking out of stereotypes. But men sometimes find themselves in even tighter boundaries in terms of what's accessible. 
We think even about children where girls are praised at times for being tomboys, but very few boys are praised for being sissies. It's a much more negative connotation. This is true as well for men's roles as fathers who, and, their, and their ability to move into the kind of emotional area often understood as the mother's space. Sometimes, I think, fathers are constrained by the mothers with whom they co-parent. I am guilty as charged there. I have a spouse who is a true co-parent, and still I give him instructions, as though I know the right way to raise our child. I remember a story a couple of years ago from the New York Times about uh, a husband and wife who were trying to co-parent 50-50, and so it was the father's turn for the day with their newborn child, and the and the mother had written up uh, very helpfully a list um, of feeding times and changing times so that he would be well-equipped to be able to take care of the baby. And uh, so she handed over the baby, and then she handed over the list, and the father took the baby and tore up the list and said, I can do this on my own schedule. Now, there's some truth. Of course, there's truth behind every stereotype. There's some truth to the difference that we sometimes see in the way fathers and mothers uh, interact with their child um, or with their children. I did a platform a couple of years ago about the difference uh, in the sounds that babies make. The dada-baba sound, which is traditionally associated with names for fathers, is actually the sound for playfulness or playing. The mama-nana sound, which is um, associated in most cultures with words for mother, is the sound for um, food. <laughs> Um, so I think in that platform, I suggested that fathers were like the playground and mothers the cafeteria in a baby's mind. And so there is that reality, right? There's a, a genetic component, an evolutionary component. But is that where it ends in the 21st century? Are we constrained by the noises that our infant makes in the way that we imagine gender roles in parenting? I'm taken aback by the way that we cannot even describe fathers as true co-parents without reverting to gender stereotypical language, to Mr. Mom. Um, Paul Hanks uh, Drelsema, in a guest blog on Motherload, which is a a blog on the New York Times about mothering issues, it's um, worth noting that he was a guest poster because there is no Fatherload blog, wrote about his own experience on parental leave when his child was born, and I quote, Most often, I was asked if I was babysitting the kid for the day or playing nanny. When I explained that I was at home full-time for three months, the movie title Daddy Daycare was brought up more than once. The roles that a mother plays in the lives of her children are so integral that to refer to her using language that suggests an occasional casual participant in the child's rearing would be at best dismissive and at worst offensive. So why isn't the same true for fathers, he goes on. Our lexicon for describing what fathers actually do is limited at best. Mothering is the standard description of what we need when we want to be comforted. Fathering is a word, just not one I've ever heard anyone actually use. And then he says, for the empirically minded, try challenging a friend of the opposite sex to count the number of changing tables you both encounter in public restrooms in a given week. If you're a man, don't take any wagers on finding the greater number of changing tables. Men's rooms aren't assumed to be places that need them. End quote. The same goes, I think, for describing the roles of mothers, even in progressive and liberal circles. 
I just, a few days ago, heard a progressive activist lesbian woman talking about her um, her life now. She's working, her partner is retired, and her partner's child is living with them for a little while. And as she described this, this family setup that she was experiencing and how she was enjoying it, she said, you know, I'm the dad now. Even those of us that break out of traditional gender roles in our lives find our descriptions of who we are and how we are bound up in those roles. Even the fact that we call a girl who likes sports a tomboy instead of a girl who likes sports. All of us have limits, I think, on how far we're willing or able to stretch our roles. But we're helped in that, I think, by folks who push those limits and boundaries further. I've spoken here at WES about the binary gender dynamic, the idea that there are only two genders, male and female, and the many folks that find that that dynamic doesn't work for them, that finds that the either-or isn't where they live in, the space, in their space in the world. And I think more and more in popular society and culture, we see folks who are pushing the boundaries of gender, either crossing between those boundaries or finding that the boundaries don't fit them at all. People who are transgendered, who cross from one gender to another, or who identify as genderqueer outside the binary gender dynamic. We've had that even on Dancing with the Stars. Chaz Bono was a transgendered uh, contestant on Dancing with the Stars, and there was a contestant in Miss Canada. Did you follow this at all? Um, In the Miss Canada beauty pageant, who was originally disqualified. Um, She was uh, born male, is now female, uh, transgendered person. And ultimately, thanks to really public outcry, she was allowed to compete in the beauty pageant um, as a woman, which is how she lives and identifies. I think folks that that play with gender or that find themselves in the wrong gender and transition help all of us to stretch our own understanding of what gender means and what it can mean. So what does this mean for fathers and for fathering? Stretching gender roles also, I think, stretches parenting roles. When we have families with two fathers or one father and no mother, with two mothers or one mother and no father, with, when we have families with a father who began as a mother and transitioned to male, we have to expand our understanding of what those roles are within a family dynamic. It's time, I think, to claim what fatherhood means for many people a father who is connected being not aberrant or different but normal, not Mr. Mom, but Mr. Dad, or even better, just parent. I'm not suggesting, actually, a new PC Parents Day holiday. Hallmark wouldn't like it if I did. Although I imagine that there are folks who would appreciate that more than the bifurcated holidays we have now. But rather, I'm calling for an awareness that fathering comes in many stripes, and that at its best, fathering and mothering is really parenting, which, by the way, can come from a biological parent or an adoptive parent, a foster parent, or a parent figure. I was pleased to find that that Father's Day itself, the holiday, actually comes from a fuller understanding of fathering than we sometimes have in our society. 
It was founded in 1910 by Sonora Smart Dodd, who um, from uh, Spokane, uh, Washington, where its first celebration was on June 19, 1910. Her father was a Civil War veteran, William Jackson Smart, and he was a single parent raising his six children in Spokane. Sonora Smart Dodd heard a sermon from her uh, minister on Mother's Day in 1909 and told her pastor that she thought that fathers should have a holiday themselves. She suggested June 5th, her father's birthday, but uh, this is from Wikipedia. The pastors hadn't had enough time to prepare their sermons. (laughs) I enjoy that aspect of the founding as well. And so the celebration was deferred to the third Sunday of June. But, you know, from that first idea in 1910, Father's Day took 50 years to get off the ground. People made fun of it. They satirized it in newspapers. They made jokes about it and said it was really just for commercial purposes. In the 1950s, a woman senator from Maine argued on behalf of Father's Day, saying we were ignoring half of parents if we didn't support it. And it was finally signed into uh, legislation as a national holiday by Richard Nixon in 1972. More than 60 years after it was first suggested in 1910. Gender roles serve us really only when they are tools. When they invite us to consider them, to play with them, to adopt what we like and discard what we don't. They're destructive, I think, when we experience them as limiting whether in our parenting or in other places in our lives. And I would say that it is our calling as a progressive religious people, as a people who believe in the inherent worth of every person, it's our calling to look beyond the roles, to look toward the essence underneath. Andrea Doucette, in a New York Times debate that's online right now about fathering and parenting, writes, In my book, Do Men Mother?, I made the argument that we need to stop looking at men through a maternal lens. If dads are left outside of the mommy wars, I say thank goodness for that. Fathers are not following in the paths of mothers. They are creating their own. It is an exciting time to see such a radical shift in fathering. Men are there, they're engaged, and they're effective. Rather than replicating or sliding into women's cultures of mothering, they are active agents in creating their own fathering culture, end quote. What I think she's saying there is that the new kind of father or a new acceptance of fathers as highly involved allows all of us to open those roles a little bit more. It's a gift to mothers as well. To see fathers as parents in a new way invites mothers to see themselves as parents in a new way, to break open the molds that society puts before us. Felix Adler, who I referred to before, felt that mothering was a true vocation, that it required ethical strength and ethical training because mothers were raising their children, and that mothers should be accorded respect and educated themselves because of their role in creating ethical agents. We live in a different time, but I think perhaps we can do no better than to remember Adler's words and thoughts but to imagine them for all who parent. And so I quote from The Ethical Philosophy of Life, one of Felix Adler's works, and I've put my own changes in here. 
Among the groups, the vocational group of parents will occupy the central place. The influence of the parent group must penetrate the religious society through and through for the purpose of drawing the entire fellowship together into a coherent unity. People henceforth will take a deeper interest in the ethical development of human society. A main factor, if not the only factor, in the ethical development of human society is the elevation of the vocational standards. He meant the ethical callings we all bear. The group of parents will therefore be in close touch with the other groups in order to gain a knowledge of the higher standards therein proposed, in order to appraise them and to inspire the growing generation with the devoted purpose to carry these standards out in practice. Happy Father's Day, and may we remind ourselves all that it means to father. Father.